as you know, we've spent the first several weeks that we've been studying Ephesians on uh, the first three chapters. Uh, we've been in this for a couple months now. But as you know, um, and I'm sure you observed, the first three chapters are heavy doctrinal chapters, a lot of theology, uh, and, and it's somewhat the unique characteristic of Ephesians. Ephesians has sometimes been nicknamed the Trinitarian epistle because Paul refers to the Trinitarian nature of God quite frequently. You might remember in chapter 1 we saw that. Well, the thesis that I'm proposing, and which I think is very consistent with how Paul's laid out the book, is the first three chapters relate to sound doctrine. The last three chapters, chapters 4 through 6, relate to God they're living. So I think it's legitimate to make this, and that's what you see on the slide. You have a copy of this. It's in that packet that, that uh, each week we update and send. Sound doctrine produces Godly living. And the Godly living is what section is what we're just beginning now today. And the, <clears throat> the way in which I've outlined the book, you don't necessarily have to outline it this way, but I've chosen to outline the, the book, the, the chapters 4 through 6, around that key word, walk. And I think, I think I mentioned that last week, that term walk, uh, NIV translates it live, but it's literally, it really is walk. What Paul is describing here is the walk of the believer. Let's put it another way. Chapters 4 through 6 are describing the, the elements of the believer's walk in the process of sanctification. Now, I think all of you are familiar enough now with how I use that term, what that means, so I'm not going to define it unless you want me to, but I'm assuming that you're with me. It's that process of God the Father conforming us into the image of His Son, Galatians 4.19, Romans 8.29, etc. And so he's describing here four characteristics of the walk of the believer, a walk of unity, a walk of holiness, a walk of love, a walk in the light, and the walk of wisdom. And he's going to conclude the book in verses 10 through the end of the, of the book, end of chapter 6, with spiritual warfare and the necessity of the believer putting on the whole armor of God. And we'll get to that in, in weeks. So with all of that background, it's a little bit of what I reviewed last week. Let's dig into chapter 4, which we also had started last week, but we didn't get anywhere near finishing it. And as we get started, uh, you'll notice again the word therefore. As, as we begin verse 1, and that is a key structural marker tying chapters 1 through 3 with chapters 4, 5, and 6, which is what we're beginning <clears throat> to study today. And if you're following your notes, it's uh, the, the page number 7, if you are using the notes. Therefore, uh, I therefore, a prisoner uh, for the Lord, urge you to walk. Now, there is our key marker. That I've chosen to outline these remaining three chapters around the, the term walk. And each time there's a term walk, he's addressing something different. So walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. <clears throat> and then he describes that walk with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I, I think, I don't remember how far we got in this, but so again, the word walk there is a marker. What is the nature of the walk that he's going to describe in these verses 1 through 16? I will argue because of what he says at the end of verse 3, 
It's a walk of unity. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let's work our way from that phrase and work our way back through the middle of verse 1. Now, unity of the Spirit. Let's think about that for just a minute. Walk in the unity, maintain the unity, uh, consistently uphold the unity of the Spirit. Now, I'm pretty sure all of your translations have capitalized Spirit, because I think it's a reference to the Holy Spirit, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the unity that he's calling for here, and what he's really describing, is what he talked about in chapter 2, where the unity of the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile equal, where the, where the Gentiles had been aliens, had been foreigners to the covenants of promise, now are brought in by the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He preached peace, and he is our peacemaker. They're all the themes that are developed there in chapter 2. So it's the same point, that the unity, the unity of the body maintained by the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer in that bond of peace, that bond of shalom. All of the walls between Jew and Gentile have been broken down. All of the walls of the ethnic differences have been broken down. We are, we are one in Christ. And so that unity is this walk that he's calling for. And I, I, men, I'm telling you, in the early church, those early decades, we have a lot of extra-biblical uh, material on this. It was an astonishing thing for the Greco-Roman world to see the unity of the church, where Jew and Gentile were worshiping together, slave and master working together, uh, worshiping together. All, if you want to speak of it this way, all the socioeconomic and ethnic differences of the Roman Empire. These people come to Christ, they're worshiping together. It was an astonishing thing to see. We have a number of historians in the Roman Empire writing about this stuff, and they're just astonished. They can't figure it out. They can't explain it. And that's what Paul is talking about. Now, let's work our way back. How do you maintain this unity? Well, he says, in a, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And as we talked about that last week, I know we did. That, that is Paul's favorite word for your, your, your position in Christ, your calling, your position in Christ. It's all the results of salvation. Uh, and he's, he really defines here several ways in which this unity is maintained. And we see it humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Now just think of that's That's almost common sense. This isn't difficult exegesis. This isn't difficult interpretation. Unity in the bond of peace, which Christ established through breaking down the, the barriers between Jew and Gentile and all the ethnic differences, that peace has been established. Now live it. And how do you live it? Well, let's look at each one of these through humility. And I know we talked about that last week, so I'm not sure I need to say much about it. But that is a profound virtue of the genuine Christian walk. Paul says in Philippians 2, do not think more highly of yourself. And whom do we imitate? And then the rest of that chapter, chapter or the rest of the first part of chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, is Jesus. Jesus is our model for that. He humbled himself. 
did not consider being equal with God something to be grasped, but surrendered, gave up that position when he added to his deity humanity, came to earth to die a substitutionary death. Whom do we follow as an example of humility? Jesus. And gentleness, ESG translates that term gentleness. Honestly, that is a very difficult word to translate and bring it into English. Um, I'm not really satisfied with the term gentleness. I kind of like considerate as a, as a way to translate that Greek term. But it's a, a con, you're considerate in your interpersonal relationships with other believers. You, you are considerate. There's an, a dimension of respect. There's a, dimen, a dimension of acceptance of who this person is in Christ. Not what they're going to become, that's Jesus' business, but to accept, to be considerate, to be gentle in dealing with all believers. Because when someone comes to Jesus, and I find that very much in, in my involvement and work in the church, when someone comes to Jesus and they come into the church, they're bringing all their baggage. <laughs> they're bringing all of their past struggles with sin, all of their, and we in the church need to help them, help them grow, help them to be able to break those old habits and replace them with new habits. Well, that requires gentleness, being considerate. And then thirdly, patient. And, you know, when we use the word patience in America, we talk about waiting at a red light. Then we got to be patient. Well, in a sense, that's right, but it's far deeper than that. The, the term patience in the Greek language is, that's why it's sometimes, sometimes translated long-suffering. <laughs> that's an old King James way to translate that Greek word, but it's a, it's a dimension, a quality of life, a character trait of life where you, you hang in there, you endure, you persevere in your interpersonal relationships with people. Because as you relate to people, you're going to see all different types of people. You're going to find hostility. Now, I'm speaking even outside the church, outside of Christian relationships. You may find persecution. That certainly is part of the history of the church. And patience is that capacity to endure and, and bear up to whatever the circumstances are to be able to, to suffer long. That's why long-suffering is the old King James way to translate that for the Lord Jesus. And then finally, bearing with one another. That is a great way to translate that bearing with one another in love. I think I've told you this. My mentor uh, back in Pennsylvania, when I came to know the Lord, and, and, and he very much helped me in, in growing and getting established in the Christian faith. And then eventually, I was ordained into ministry. This was 13, 14 years later. But he said something to me I've never forgot. He said, Jim, you will discover that ministry would be great if it were not for people. And you have to think about that for a minute, but that is often where the struggle is, people. But you bear with one another in love. And so that's, that, that is an amazing capacity that people gifted in interpersonal relationships have that capacity to bear with one another, to, to be able to see the strengths and see the weaknesses, but still love the person, to see their high points and the low points, but still love the person, 
to understand, as he does with every human being, Jesus isn't done with us yet. Be patient. Bear with one another. Encourage and build up and edify and admonish all of those verbs that are in the New Testament. And so that's how I want you to think about this. That's why I worked our way back from the end of verse 3 all the way back to the middle of verse 1, because the walk he's calling us to is a walk of unity in the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so he's going to make now a theological appeal in verses 4 and 5 and 6 to this admonition, to, to this commandment, to walk in the unity of the Spirit. But before we get to verse 4, 5, and 6, are there any questions about this? I mean, not difficult, pretty straightforward, but it's, it's an amazing reminder of how supernatural the church really is, a walk of unity. All right. So your silence means you got it. Good. Now, I put this in blue here on the sheet, on the slide, and you can see it. As we look at verses 4, uh, 5, and 6, one of the tools of Bible study is you make a series of observations followed by your interpretation, where you conclude with your application. Observation, interpretation, application. So we're making some observations here about these verses. What do you see? You see the term one is used seven times. You see the term all is used four times. And as we work our way through these verses, you are going to see that the Apostle Paul is talking about God as Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so another observation we can make is that the diversity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the unity of the Godhead, one essence of three persons, is the model for the diversity and unity you see in the church, which is another reason, and this is not an original thought with me, this is one of the reasons why the Trinity, God as Trinity, and understanding what that means, is so central to all human institutions that God has created. Marriage, the church, in both of the these institutions, as they were created and as they are described and, and developed throughout the scriptures, God as Trinity is the model. That diversity in unity of the Trinity is the diversity in unity that's to characterize a husband and wife relationship. That diversity in unity is to describe the entity called the church, the body of Christ. It's diverse. Ethnic diversity, racial diversity, gender diversity, everybody has different spiritual gifts, all of that, but yet there's unity. He's focusing here on the unity. So let me read verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Now, obviously, I just read this. You would agree this is heavily theological. I mean, Paul is back, backing the dump truck up and unloading a lot of doctrinal truth here to validate his call for unity 
in the body of Christ, for his command to walk in unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Well, let's look at it. And the quiz next week is going to be on verses 4 through 6. So I want you to pay very careful attention to this. I can't see you, but most of you are probably mocking me right now for saying that. One body, what's he referring to? The body is the metaphor Paul uses throughout his writings of the church. There's one body, the organic, living, pulsating body of Christ, the church, over which he is the head. There's one spirit, and I'm sure all of your translations have that capitalized. It should be. It's referring to the Holy Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit. And, of course, the connection between the body of Christ, i.e. the church, and the Spirit, i.e. the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit indwells the church. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit as an entity and individual members, 1 Corinthians six nineteen, are temples of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? You've been bought with a price, and that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. And then he goes on. Okay, so what's he developing? He's developing this theme of unity with the diversity in that unity. There's one body. That's a lot of diversity in the body, but there's one. There's one here, Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells all of those diverse members, but there's still one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. This is a little more a little more perplexing when he says one hope. The theme of hope, the virtue of hope, my, is all over the Bible. I mean, it's kind of everywhere. But for the church, that is the temple of the Holy Spirit, both corporately and individually, what is our primary unifying hope? Well, I believe the New Testament especially helps us to understand that that one hope that singularly everyone focuses on is the return of Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul talks about in another book, Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Our blessed hope, the return of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For the church, it is that event that becomes known as the rapture wherever you're going to put the rapture on that scale of end times. The point is, that's our hope. In John chapter 14, Jesus made a promise. I'm coming back for you. I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I'm done preparing a place for you, I'm going to come back for you. Where I am, you're going to be with me, with me always. And so among the many, many dimensions of hope, those one hope, for the body of Christ, energized by the Spirit. It's the return of Jesus. He promised that he would come back. And I had studied under a man, I think you've heard me say this, I studied under a man who defined hope as expectancy with desire. You expect Jesus to return, and you desire for him to return. In the Thessalonian letters, Paul uses a use a verb that it's almost a tiptoe expectation. You can't wait for Jesus to come back. 
And so I think it, the more we develop it, as I've tried to do here in our interpretation, observation, interpretation, application, that this, this interpretation, it, it really is and really can only be the focus on the return of Christ. So then, now, so we've had three ones, now he has four more. Verse 5, what's he, what's he focusing on? One more time, unity. What is it that fosters the unity? What is it that, that is the, the set of reasons why we should maintain the unity? One Lord. That Greek word is kurios. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that translates Yahweh. The self-sufficient, self-existent great I am of the universe. So one Lord, one sovereign, providential Lord of the universe. There aren't multiple. In the Greco-Roman world, they had many, many, many gods, and they built temples to each one of the gods, and depending on what they were doing, it would depend on which god they sacrificed to. That's silly, that's ludicrous, that's outside the scriptures. There's one Yahweh, one faith. Now, let's think about that for a minute, because when you are uh, dealing with that word faith in the New Testament, it has one of two meanings, and only context can help you which one it is. First, it can mean faith as an act, where you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's that act of faith. As you've heard me say many times, God lays the gift on on the table. You must pick it up by faith, and that applies into your life. The second use of faith is it can refer to that belief, that body of doctrine, that belief system, what you believe in, your basic doctrinal framework. I think this is what he's referring to, that that body of faith, that body of doctrine, and then it revolves around how you look at God, how you look at salvation, etc., and then for us, sixthly, there's two more yet, one baptism. Now, here is where <laughs> you get in a lot of controversy, because it depends on, on how people are looking at this. The, does it refer to the ordinance of baptism when you publicly identify with Jesus in, in the ordinance of baptism, whether you are a part of a church tradition that sprinkles or pours or immerses you? Or is it referring to what Paul addresses, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where he places us in the body of Christ? Uh, That's a hard call. It really is. And in a way, it may represent both, because both are related to one another. But if it is the one baptism of the Spirit, it is when the Holy Spirit, at the moment of salvation, when we put our faith in the Lord, We are then placed in the body of Christ. The language Paul uses, we're baptized into the body of Christ. Remember, baptism, just as a word, whether it's a noun or a verb, means to identify with. And so that could be that. That's my preference. But it could be one baptism as the ordinance. Jesus established two ordinances for the church, the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's table or communion, or Eucharist, whatever your tradition calls it. So it's really hard. It's a judgment call. It, it could be both in the sense that they are related, or he could be referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, pushing in the body of Christ, or the ordinance. And then the seventh and final one, amen. Remember, these are all 
driving home the theme of unity. One God and Father. Now, before I look at the all phrases, let's stop there for just a minute. One God and Father. Now, that that's emphasizing, of course, the, the first person of the Trinity, but that becomes really important because this is developed throughout the Scriptures in several ways. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that the Father is the name that establishes the model for all fathers. So you want to know what a good father looks like? Study God the Father. It also has the important element of being in the family of God. I've, you, you've heard me say this many times. Before you put your faith in Christ, your relationship to God was condemned sinner to judge of the universe. You put your faith in Jesus, that changes. It's now Heavenly Father and child. We're now in the family of God. We come into the family of God when we put our faith in Jesus. And so I think that's primarily the element here. He is the Father, the Heavenly Father, but He's also the God and Father referring to His administrative rule and authority, His sovereignty. And so Paul then adds to that God and Father of all as the Creator, who is over all, which is a clear statement of sovereignty, through all, which is a clear reference to his providence. Now, I've talked about that before, but his providence means that God is involved in his creation. He's not an absentee landlord. He's involved. His providence, his providential actions are real. And then finally, in all his presence through the Holy Spirit. And so you, you have this quite marvelous, almost unbelievable description of the unity that is established by the Godhead and how that translates into the unity in the diversity of all makeup make aspects of the church ethnic diversity, gender diversity, racial diversity, uh, etc., socioeconomic, whatever it is, but in Christ, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The church is to be marked by unity. And I'm sure you're probably thinking now in the back of your mind, as I try to apply this, I don't know a lot of churches that are unified, you might be saying. My experience, as you might be saying in your in churches, is, man, I know a lot of squabbles and fights that are going on in churches. And tragically, that is often the case. But the appeal of the Apostle Paul is, because of the doctrinal truths of chapters 1 through 3, the church of Jesus Christ should be a model for unity in diversity. And Overall, in the 2,000 years of the church, its history, that is, that you have seen. Lots of examples of disunity and fighting, but amazing examples of unity. And that unity, that unity is established by what the Apostle Paul is talking about in verses 4 and 5 and 6. All right? 
Now that's a lot with time. I've been, I've been talking for a half hour and nobody has said anything. So let me stop here for a minute. I got to take my breath and, and, and make sure we're ready for the next section versus um, uh, seven through 16, which concludes this section. So any questions on these first six verses? There's a lot in them, that's for sure. <clears throat> All right. Uh, Jim, I, I was just thinking that with all the diversity that we do have, that there's bound to be issues that will arise from time to time. But that doesn't, that's not a, a breaking of this oneness, uh, is it? If that's, those items are discussed in, in a amiable way and can be worked out uh, according to biblical um, standards and that we understand those to be well that's 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 correct um the church the church should be able to model how you can disagree civilly lovingly and still maintain unity and um without um breakdown of relationships, breakdown of family units, et cetera, but it's very difficult. You know, if I were Satan, and, uh, and I'm saying that only <laughs> hypothetically, but if I were Satan, I would, I would aim at two things in terms of the church. Number one, I'd aim at leaders. I'd try to pick off all the leaders. Wherever they're vulnerable, I'm going to nail them. And because when there's leadership failure, that is a catastrophic effect on the church. Think of what just happened. All this is coming out about Ravi Zacharias. Horrible. Uh, he, he, was living a, he was living a double life. He was one of my heroes, but now it's come out, the kind of life he was living. Uh, it's unbelievable. He's destroyed that ministry. RZIM is not going to survive what's come out. So that devastating impact of leadership failure. Secondly, I would aim at this point, unity. I would create discord. I'd create divisiveness. I'd create disagreement. I would aim at destroying the unity of the body of Christ. And when you look at church history, uh, they are the two areas where the church has been most vulnerable. Leadership failure and the divisiveness. I'm seeing it right now. I I mean, I, I don't want to get into any of this. I'm just using it as an illustration. But this issue of wearing masks has divided the Church of Jesus Christ. You have people that don't talk to one another anymore because the one chooses to wear a mask, the other says, no, this is my liberty. I don't have to wear a mask. Nobody's going to tell me where to And they divide over this. And it creates disunity. It creates divisiveness. And it's, it's really remarkable. I'm not saying that isn't, but that's an illustration. Satan has exploited that. He's having a field day with that issue. Because exactly what Paul is discussing right here is, is an issue of instead of being reminded we're one in Christ, and we're going to have some dear brothers and sisters that choose not to wear a mask, and some dear brothers and sisters that choose to wear a mask, and instead of it dividing and creating a divisive issue where people don't even talk to one another over that, you should be able to civilly, bearing with one another in love, we just read about that in verse 3, over an issue like that, and in, in our church, and I'm pretty sure all of your churches, you would you would see that. I can't imagine you haven't. 
Some people have chosen because we've required wearing masks for a period of time. They choose not to come. I'm not going to come to a church that requires me to wear a mask. <laughs> we have four doctors in our church, and they all have said it is wise. It is wise. Not, and now we're backing off on a lot of that now because of all that's happening. But it's just, isn't that amazing? That instead of, okay, I understand there's going to be difference of opinion on an issue like this. It becomes so divisive, so so much discord that people leave, and it, it creates an unbelievable divisiveness and discord. And this is what Paul is appealing to here. Walk in the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And because of verses 4 through 6, your anchor is the Trinitarian God, and that becomes the basis for your unity. So can you agree to disagree on something civilly in a God-honoring way? Oh, yes, we can. Yes, we can. So, so if our heart is troubled with something, as you say, it affects all churches, we probably need to take that to the Lord in prayer, being open to his leading, and perhaps search the scriptures um, for confirmation of his leading, and, and uh, as the Holy Spirit indwells us, then take that to... Uh, to the Lord, and do you feel that he will be able to reconcile that to that particular individual so that that person can get rid of any consternation or any issue that he's had with that person? Can you comment on that? Well, yeah, I mean, that the Bible— is just filled with both in the narratives, the examples, and the histories, etc., whether in the Old Testament or New Testament, as well as the teaching section, and then as well as the wisdom literature, the Psalms. We've studied a number of those over the years. In the Psalms, where the, the, the psalmist, use that as an example, the psalmist takes these things to the Lord, and he's, he has enemies, he has people that don't understand what he's doing, and they've left him, and so on. Take it to the Lord. Find the counsel and comfort first in the Lord. But also, I think, and this is the mutual bond of peace that we share as believers, to, to be, and I'm going to put it the way Jesus puts it in the, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be a peacemaker. Christians are to be peacemakers. And when, when you read and study that term, what that means, what Jesus is really saying, be a peacemaker, you, you're the one, you are the one who's always trying to build consensus and build unity. You're not the one who causes this unity. That's not being a peacemaker. <laughs> you're, the, you're the one who's trying to resolve the disunity. You're not the one who creates the disunity. You're the one who tries to resolve it. And that can apply in a meeting, which, you know, it's something that's very much a part of the church. Uh, it could be in a in a in a in a situation where you're needing to make decisions. If you have a congregational form of church government, the the congregation is going to discuss this. Sometimes they can become heated. Are you going to want to be the one that creates the discord? You can disagree. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing. It's what you do with the disagreement when it comes to the body of Christ. And and I mean, this is something that. Um, 
I, I'm trying to think of how I want to say it because almost no matter how I'm going to say it, it's not going to come out right. But often on this issue, we don't do a very good job of this. Generally speaking, we really don't. <laughs> and uh, that's one of the reasons why there are so many denominations and so many church splits and so many divisions. Thank you. Appreciate that. I'm not sure I helped much, but all right. Anything else before we move on? Here are some observations. I, I believe you have a copy of this. Uh, and I'm not going to read all this, but this is what I have been talking about in verses 4 through 6. Trinitarian God is integral to the unity of the church. The Spirit begins the discussion, is central to what we're going to read now in 7 through 13. And again, the Trinity, I mean, God is Trinity. One essence of three persons, different relation and function. Trinity is the model of diversity and unity. Paul brings this up when he discusses marriage and the family, Ephesians 2, excuse me, Ephesians 5, 22 to 32. Paul keeps bringing it up within the context of the church. You see it here, you'll see it in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. We'll see it a little bit later on in chapter 4. God is Trinity is our model of diversity in unity. And to me, that's profound. So, Paul then moves in verse um, uh, 7 through verse 16, which is the end of this unit on, on, uh, on the walk of unity. He now gives more focus, uh, rather specifically, to the role of the Spirit and to the unity that comes, now listen very carefully how I'm going to put this, that comes from teaching sound doctrine. So let's first of all look, verse 7, but grace was given to each one, there's the theme of diversity. Now, that grace, as you're going to see in what follows, is a charis, charismata, it's a spiritual gift. And that's what he's talking about. Has been given to, to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so Paul is saying to us, okay, within the body of Christ, within the church, what's the nature of diversity? Well, there's ethnic diversity, there's racial diversity, there's socioeconomic diversity. Uh, etc. Gender diversity, male, female, etc. But there's also this diversity of spiritual gifts. Everybody has a set of spiritual gifts tied, I think, for the most part to how God created us, the talents that are energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But where did this come from? It comes from Jesus. He has measured this out. The Greek word for measure is metron. We get a word metric from that. He's measured this out. Whatever you have as spiritual enablement comes from Jesus through the Holy Spirit. It isn't something that you did. It isn't something that just all of a sudden, boom. No, this is part of what Jesus has done. And so to appeal to this, Paul brings to appeal to this that 
This is dispensed by Jesus through the Spirit. He goes back to the Old Testament and pulls out, and when, at first, it's kind of, you think it's just an obscure verse, but he pulls out of Psalm 68, 18, this statement. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And again, when you first read this, you think, what? <laughs> How does this fit? But now, take a little minute about in thinking about this. Think of our think of our three part observation, interpretation, application. Observation. You read a verse like this, quoting from the Old Testament, Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen. The very first question you should ask as you examine the text is, "When he ascended on high, who's the he?" The pronoun he. Christ. Whom is that referring to? Jesus. It's referring to Jesus. In the context, you just the last the last proper noun of verse seven is Christ, and he as a pronoun is referring to Christ. <clears throat> so when he ascended on high, okay. Now that all of a sudden I said, oh, I know what that is. That's the exaltation of Jesus Christ after his death, burial, and resurrection, which we're going to celebrate in a couple of days. He, he ascended back to the Father. Oh, okay. He ascended on high. He led a coast of captives. That's a little more problematic because we have to think, okay, who, who are the captives? Well, here you have to think, and this is a little hard. This is more than just observation. This now becomes interpretation. Because in the ancient world, when a victor was victorious, when a conqueror was victorious, he took those whom he defeated and made a public display of them. Okay? When Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension occurred, whom had he defeated? Satan and his minions. They are defeated. Their days are numbered. Their destiny is a lake of fire. Jesus says, the Father created the lake of fire for Satan and his fallen angels. And so I'm saying all that because of the captors. This is a statement of triumph. And the exaltation of Jesus Christ and his ascension, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an exaltation of triumph over his enemies, sin, Satan, and death. Then, this is very typical in the ancient Near World, Eastern world, he gave gifts to those who are his citizens, those who are his people. Well, in this context, then, who, to whom does he give gifts? To his church. That's what Paul's talking about here, the church, the body. So he pulls out of the Old Testament this seemingly obscure verse, and when you examine it, well, it isn't obscure, it makes sense. The victory of Jesus over sin, death, and, and Satan is triumphant, and therefore he dispenses gifts to his church. And so parenthetically, the next verse, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? That he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth, and he who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. So 
Verse 10 and verse 11 just summarizes the incarnation of Jesus and his exaltation after his death, burial, and resurrection. He descended to earth in his incarnation. He added to his deity humanity. And then he triumphed in ascending far above all things to the right hand of the Father that he might fill all things. Yeah. And that is part of what he's, we're going to see him talk about because it is through his church. We read about this earlier in chapter in, in, uh, in Ephesians. Through his church, Jesus begins to fill as his church goes throughout the world, fill the world with his ambassadors, his representatives, because Jesus has invaded this rebellious planet. He is plundering the kingdom of Satan. And every time someone trusts Christ, Satan loses and the angels rejoice. And so this is a marvelous summary, again, of the fantastic work of Jesus through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and why he can, why he, Jesus, then dispenses these gifts to accomplish purposes, which he begins to talk about in verse 11, 12, and following. All right, now, I, I, I tried to put Psalm 68, 18 in its context and see how Paul is using it. You with me on that? I have a question on 6818. You have a question on what? Uh, on Psalm 6818, yes. the one we yeah. just read. Yeah. Um, um, could you uh, uh, elaborate a little bit more on the your um, note for the demonic hosts as the captives? I've always kind of understood that as Jesus set, setting the captives free as opposed to parading and uh, you know an army of defeated foes that that happened later. Um, could you help me a little bit with that? Well, uh, yes, <laughs> but I'm giving you my understanding of, of what is really going on here, because in Psalm 68 and in the ancient Near Eastern world, a victorious leader, king, general, whatever mm -hmm. it is, the evidence of his triumph is this parade of captives that he leads. Uh -huh. And you and I aren't captives. We're freed. But we were, he descended it for three days, right? And then he but the, sent the, the captives. The, 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 Are those different captives? Yeah, the descended there isn't going, isn't his death. The descended, as he refers to, is he descended, um, uh, he descended to the lower regions, that is the earth. Right. That's, that's referring First. to his incarnation. Right, first, right? He descended That's first, right. and that was post-mortem, right? He descended first, then he ascended, right? No, 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 no. no. Look at, now, I'm reading from the ESV. This is how they look at that. Look at okay. verse 9. Okay. He ascended, but it does, what does that not, what does that mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Right. That is referring to his incarnation, not his death. So incarnation, how, how does that tie? I mean, I don't want to take up all the time here. I just, you know, if you could point me in a direction here, because this is well, intriguing. It's, well, Russ, it's, it's, it's how, how you understand the exaltation of Jesus uh -huh. is preceded by his work of the, his incarnation. He descended to the lower regions of the earth. 
Now, some, this is, I, I don't agree with this. Some say, well, that's a reference to Jesus going to hell for three days when he, after he died. Yeah, that's, I don't, that, I don't think that's, that's what I'm arguing, because you've got the captives and the gifts right next to each other in the same sentence. And what you're separating into two separate unique things without a comma or inner, it's something interjecting. I, I, in I think, and, and this, this is what Paul is doing, and, and most of your translations probably have nine and ten in parenthesis, uh-huh. because Paul is giving his interpretation of how Psalm 68 applies to Jesus. How does it apply to Jesus? In his work as the second person of the Trinity, he ascended, exalted to the right hand of the Father. But in order for him to be exalted, and this is exactly what Paul argues in Philippians 2, he added to his deity humanity. He took on the form of man, came to earth in the incarnation, he then lived that life for 33-plus years, mm-hmm. including the three years. But then, obedience to the Father, he went to the cross, and all that's involved in celebrated on Good Friday and so on, and then was resurrected from the dead, and then 40 days later was taken back to the Father, his ascension. Paul, in verses 9 and 10, is giving the comprehensive overview of what Jesus did for us in his his willingness to add to his deity humanity, where he descended to the earth. The incarnation is God coming to earth, invading Satan's kingdom. And then, through his death, burial, and resurrection, and subsequent ascension, triumphing over his enemies and leading them in captive. That the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus Christ is the mark of triumph over his enemies. So is it a model then? Or or were the third of the angels carted off to heaven in captivity um, like a, a king would at that point? I think well no, <laughs> it 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 is an it is an illustration, Russ, and this is what's hard because you're expecting you're expecting to see a parade in heaven when Jesus goes back to the Father on Ascension Day, a parade in heaven where Satan is leading the parade and all the minions of Satan. That's not that's not what it means. But it means the death, burial, resurrection. Let me start. The incarnation, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus is the triumph of God over his enemy Satan. Yes. That's why Christmas is always connected with Easter. Because it is the entire redemptive story, and that's what Paul's doing in nine and at nine and ten in that parenthesis. This application of Jesus, of Psalm sixty-eight eighteen to Jesus, is his triumph. It is his triumph through him coming to earth in the incarnation, living his perfect life for thirty-three some odd years, including in obedience to the Father, going to the cross, etc., and the whole thing, which I don't keep repeating. And that illustrates demonstrably, unequivocally, and incontrovertibly his triumph over sin, Satan, and death. And that's the positional triumph for us. Satan is a defeated foe. His minions are defeated. That's why you see so much demonic activity during the public ministry of Jesus. 
because Satan knows what's going on, and he throws everything he can at Jesus. There's going to be one final act of Satan throwing everything he can at Jesus, and that's recorded for us in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 18. And this is, this, let me put it another way. Paul is applying, in Psalm 68, 18, applying the positional truth of what Christ's incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection, and subsequent ascension means. It's the defeat of everything we abhor. And as the triumphant victors in the ancient world led the captives whom they defeated, led a host of captives, that is a metaphor for the triumph of Jesus through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. He has triumphed. He's now the warrior lamb who's triumphed over evil. And we're waiting for the final dimension of his triumph, which is his return. He promised to come back, and he will fulfill that promise. Thank you. So with Paul then, and we're never going to get this finished, but verse 11, Paul now begins to explain these gifts. What has Christ given to the church? Look at verse 11. I'm going to read this section, and then next week we'll start to really take it apart. And he gave, that takes you back to what we just read, in, in, but grace was given to each one of us according, what did he give? He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Uh, next week I'm going to talk about what are all those categories? What do they mean? But look at verse 12. It's an infinitive, an infinitive of purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So these church leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, pastors, that's really what that means, Teachers, what's their job? To equip the saints. For what purpose? Two purposes. The work of the ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. Building up could be translated the edifying of the body. I want to talk about all that next week. How long? Verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Uh, I probably should stop there. I could keep reading, but maybe I will. By humans to... um, uh, cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow up, so that he builds itself up in love. So it builds itself up in love. I mean, this is it's just phrase after phrase after phrase, incredibly pregnant with meaning. We have a lot of work to do next week. But I'm going to stop now. But verse 11, through the end of this unit, 
verse 18, Paul gives a marvelous, marvelous understanding of what the local church is to be doing. What are the priorities of the local church? If you want a refresher course, read verses 11 through 18. And this isn't about ski trips, as important as they are. This isn't about the coffee hour, as important as that is. This isn't about, well, I won't fill in the blank. Notice what he's saying. This is to equip the church for ministry and the building up of the body so that it becomes all that its head, the Lord Jesus, wants it to become. It's not going to be mauled over by false teaching. It's not going to be mauled over by superficial, shallow religiosity. This will be an edifice of depth. We need to talk about that next week. This is, to me, and I've been in, you know, I've been in academic ministry most of my life, but I was always involved in church ministry. If you want to find out what's the local church's priority, this is the place to start. This lays out what the local church's priority should be. There are a lot of things that it does, and they're all wonderful things. But, boy, this is the priority. Powerful stuff here. All right. Well, it's, I'm over time here. I better quit. So I hope you're with me. I, you might get the sense that I really like this passage of Scripture. This is, this is quite important. And I, I, Just a little. I, I want people to really understand it. And so since you're my students now, I'm going to strive the best I can to help you really understand it. Are you sort of with me, or did I lose you back about five minutes? <laughs> no, you got good. us. You got us. We're looking forward to the next session. All right, good. Well, I'm going to assume that the two voices I heard speak for the whole group, so that's good. <laughs> but let me pray here and I'll let you go. I want to wish you all a happy Easter. This is, I know you know this, but this is, this is what our faith is all about. What we celebrate Friday and what we celebrate Sunday, this is what it's all about. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow, as the old Gaither worship chorus said. It's the center of our faith. Lord, we thank you for our time together. Uh, uh, as you know, this is one of the most important passages in the New Testament uh, about what what is the priority of the local church? What should it really be zeroing in on as its priority? This it starts to get to the core of it. So thank you that we have the honor and privilege to study this together. I pray for these men. We are in Passion Week and Holy Week right now. And in, on Friday is when we celebrate uh, the, the death of Jesus on the cross. But it's Good Friday because this is what purchased our redemption. The shedding of his blood atoned for our sins. He died on our place and made justification, the acquittal and declaration of righteousness possible because of what Jesus did. He's our suffering Savior who died in our place. And then Sunday we will celebrate the triumph of the resurrection. That grave in Jerusalem isn't, isn't have a body in it anymore. That grave is empty because Jesus was brought back to life. Paul says, by the power of the Spirit, the Father raised him from the dead. He now is exalted at the right hand of Father. And the next thing we're looking forward to is his return for us. Jesus, you promised to come back for us. We long for that. We look forward for that. That is our blessed hope. So be with these men as they remember all that Christ did for us this weekend. 
I appreciate them. I, I love them as men of God. Help them to represent you well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.